Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is a man who, after being drafted out of high school in the sixth round by the New York Yankees in the 1974 Major League Baseball draft, enjoyed an eight-year playing career in the majors where he was primarily a catcher from 1979 to 1987, playing for three major league teams, the New York Yankees, Seattle Mariners, and California Angels. He would go on to have a seven-year managing career, serving as skipper for the Texas Rangers and Cincinnati Reds. He has served as coach for many teams, including two teams still involved in the playoffs, as well as, last but not least, Team Israel at the 2017 World Baseball Classic. It's a pleasure to welcome the man known as Jay Savage, the one and only Jerry Jerry Naren to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. You know, it's interesting because you're born into a baseball family. Your dad worked for the Isaac Kahn Furniture Company in Goldsboro. Your uncle Sam was a baseball lifer. Long before you were born, he was a protege of Branch Rickey. And after his playing career ended in 1948, he actually served as the bullpen catcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers during 49 and 1950, the last two years of Branch Rickey's tenure there. Then he followed him to the Pittsburgh Pirates as the Bucks' major league uh, bullpen catcher from 1951 through 64, which includes their 1960 World Series championship over the Yankees. While you were only eight at the time when he finished his stint there, did you ever have time to spend time with him while he was with the Pirates? Yeah, I'll tell you this. I'm impressed with the research you've done. <laughs> uh, yes, you know, just uh, growing up, the first thing I ever knew about Major League Baseball was 1960. My mom and dad went to the three games in New York for the World Series when Pirates and uh, the Yankees played. And uh, I, I stayed with one of my aunts, so I knew that it was something special for my mom and dad to get away and do something. And that's the first time I knew anything about Major League Baseball, and I've uh, uh, been hooked ever since. So, I mean, it's so strange how those chance encounters and the fact that you, you went to that kind of hooked you. So would you say that really was the, the, the spark that ignited the flame for you? Oh, yeah, no question. And uh, my Uncle Sam... Uh, Time with the Cardinals in the 30s, like you said, and, uh, you know, just the background that he had, and uh, it was just a baseball playing family. Uh, my dad played a year of pro ball, and I uh, ended up getting hurt. I have uh, two other uncles that played a little bit of pro ball, I think maybe Class D or whatever for a year or two, but uh, all through it. And uh, my son played in pro ball with the Orioles. My brother played a year in pro ball and also coached. And uh, I have uh, Sam's grandson is right now a pitching coach with the Nationals Carolina League team, and his dad uh, also played pro ball. He was a, he was drafted by the Mets in the '60s. Yeah, it's also interesting because after you're drafted out of high school, you head to rookie league in the Johnson City Yankees, managed by Gene Hassel. Your brother Johnny was on that team as well. What's it like to be a teammate of your brother's at the professional level? Well, my brother had gone to four years of college, and we I signed out of high school. He signed out of college. And just growing up, my brother, you know, being a younger brother, he never wanted to have anything to do with me. I tried to keep up with him and his buddies, but they, they would beat me up and tell me to get get lost, that type thing. But it was nice playing with him that year. I hit third, he hit fourth, and uh, he had a pretty good year. I think he hit about 16 home runs or something that year. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun just being able to play with my brother and uh, – 
being with, you know, a farm club with the Yankees, it was pretty special. I'm going to jump way out of sequence because Mark's going to have some questions about this. So many years later, you ended up back with your brother coaching with the Brewers. What was it like for all those years to be back with him in a major league dugout? The one thing is my brother had been out of baseball, and then in 2003 he got back in as a, a coach with the Brewers in the minor leagues, and he was there through 06. And I was with the Reds, and we ruled five Josh Hamilton with the Reds. My brother had known Josh since he was a young kid growing up with his son playing youth sports, and my brother had even coached Josh in, in fall baseball leagues. And just knowing Josh Hamilton's background, I knew that he needed somebody full-time, and it just worked out where my brother was available, where we were able to get him, and he came in to kind of mentor and stay with Josh. And when Josh got traded to the Rangers, Johnny went over with the Rangers with them for a few years and was an assistant batting coach over there. And when uh, the Brewers needed a, a coach, uh, Mike Napoli, who had been with Ron Renneke and with the Angels, called Ron about uh, Johnny and he recommended him, and that's how Johnny got the interview with the Brewers, more than me having anything to do with it. Interesting. And, and now going back chronologically, you move up through the Yankees minor league ladder playing for Jorge Posada's Uncle Leo, not not the Uncle Leo from Seinfeld, at Fort Lauderdale. Then Mike Ferraro, who was then your manager at every level of the climb. What did Mike mean to you for your development as a player? Mike was a sound baseball guy fundamentally you know it was going to be done the right way uh he he was uh, just a guy that believed in me probably when a lot of people didn't you know i hit 300 in rookie ball out of high school in the appalachian league then i went to fort lauderdale and kind of struggled a couple years as a young kid in high a ball and uh, he, when he got the double-A job after being together in a ball he took me with double-A and, and my career took off but I just appreciate the way Mike uh, gave me an opportunity, the way he taught the fundamentals, and just a solid baseball guy, and a guy that you know was with the Yankees some up and down in the '60s, and uh, so it, it was a, it was a lot of fun playing for Mike. You know, it's also interesting because you're a catcher in the Yankees organization time when they have the best catcher in baseball, Thurman Munson. He's the captain of the team. How tough is it having a perennial all-star on the big league team, on the, the team you're trying to make, who's the starter, who you know, it, you know, he's a fixture there? Well, you know, something. one thing I try to tell players today, you can't worry about everything out of your control. You only worry about what you can, you're able to control. So it really didn't bother me. I was just trying to, to play the best I could and be the best player I could. And, uh, Thurman was a guy that you know was his rookie year. What was it, '69 or '70? I was in high school, junior high, whatever. And he was a guy that you know I really liked. You know, it was Johnny Bench and Thurman Munson for me when I was in high school. They were my two guys. But my first spring training, I think, was '77. I, I was up a little bit in spring training '76, but '77 pretty full time. And the first day, Thurman comes over to me and he says, "I, I, I hear you want my job." <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was catching batting practice. And I said, yeah, I want your job. And he said, okay, well, I want to practice my foul tips today. So the first couple of swings he takes at batting practice, he fouls off my mask. I mean, straight back. It was unbelievable that he was able to do it. But he just laughed. And uh, Thurman was a really good guy and helped me all he could. And, uh, uh, well, he's in my thoughts almost every day. Greatly missed, I think, by everybody that ever played with him. And uh, uh, just um, thankful I had the opportunity to be on the club with him. 
You make the Yankees in 79. You make your major league debut as a defensive replacement for Thurman in Chicago. Six days later, you make your first start at Yankee Stadium, catching Louis Tiant. Uh, you know, not the easiest pitcher in the world to, to catch for your first major league start. What do you remember most about that first time where you're penciled into a starting lineup? Well, for one thing, I was a September call-up in 78, and I just didn't get in a game. I was in AAA in Tacoma in 78, and we were in the playoffs, so it kind of got extended a little bit, and they even brought up some guys from AA. And I get called up to the big leagues in 78, and I sit there a couple weeks and don't even get in a game. I mean, you know, it went down to the last day and even the Bucky Dent game. I was there for all that but didn't get in a game. And now I make the club in 79. I was spring training, and I, I was there, I don't know, it seemed like a week, it seemed like a year, but it a week or so before I ever got in the ball game, and I was beginning to wonder if I was ever going to get in a game. But uh, uh, catching Tiant, really easy to catch, great command, uh, uh, called his own game pretty much, and he would change speeds off his fastball and his breaking ball. So all I had to worry about was two pitches, really, to call, and he changed speeds off both of them. And uh, for a catcher, it was it was a lot of fun just being able to catch somebody that had that kind of command and just a feel for the game of pitching. So did he give you a cigar after the game? No, he didn't. But I'll tell you this: we the Yankees, uh, we went to Patsy's there in New York for dinner. We were going on the road, and we had a mechanical delay. We go to Patsy's for dinner, the whole club, and Frank Sinatra was there. And Frank brought around the cigars for Tiant, and Tiant made sure everybody got one of the cigars from Frank Sinatra. And Sinatra also picked up the bill that night. So, you know, I, I have the, I, I, when somebody wants to get in a story about topping people, I say, how many people can say Frank Sinatra bought them dinner? <laughs> nice. So that's, that was pretty special. We're talking to Jerry Naren. You know, you, you mentioned that catching Tiant was easy. I, I have to imagine as a catcher, I, you know, I know as a batter, I mean, the fact that he would turn to center field prior to delivering the pitch was somewhat disconcerting. But I, I would think more for a catcher when all of a sudden the pitcher's not looking at you and then turns and throws a pitch. That didn't bother you at all? No, no, not really. I mean, you, you, that's just, you know, when you're, you're catching or hitting uh, – I think the hitters today, it might throw off a little more with the guys with the big leg kick or the toe tap or whatever, but catching, no, you're sitting there, you're just waiting for the ball to come out of their hand. You don't even worry about it. You know, your time with Thurman obviously was tragically cut short as on August 2nd, 1979, Thurman was killed in a tragic plane crash. What did you learn about the art of catching as well as leadership in the short time that you had with Thurman? Oh, he, he would talk about, you know, how to work hitters and that type thing and the pitchers you had and, uh, uh, also, when uh, things like when Billy, you know, Bob Lemon was the manager there at the start of 79, and then Billy became the manager during the year, and Thurman made sure I knew that if Billy ever looked like he was upset with me or, or mad at me, just go ahead and hit me, hit him before he sucker punches me. So, so that's, that's the type of stuff I got from Thurman. <laughs> I have to imagine that being the, the first catcher to go behind the plate after Thurman um, the first game back had to be tremendously emotional for you. What was it like that first game played after Thurman's death? Well, for one thing, Mr. Steinbrenner talked with me before the game, and he said, you know, the club's going to take the field for the national anthem like always, but uh, he said, you're going to stay over on the side. He said, the entire club's going to be on the top step or in front of the dugout, and he said, I want you to stand over there and leave home plate vacant. So, I don't know if it was originally Mr. Steinbrenner's idea, but Mr. Steinbrenner's the one that told me what to do there. And uh, 
emotional. I, I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, it's, you lose somebody you're close to, somebody you have tremendous respect for. Uh, it's still difficult. It's, I still think about it all the time, and I, I never played a game again where I had that, you know, that same type of feel. And uh, it's just tragic that we lost him. And uh, but for me, you know, Derek Jeter was a great captain. But for me, Thurman will always be the captain. Now, after your playing days, you moved on to be a manager in the Baltimore Orioles farm system. What was it about managing that appealed to you at that point? Teaching, uh, just teaching young kids, and uh, it was a lot of fun being with young guys who want to learn, want to get to the big leagues. But the teaching part, and I think you know, coaching and managing, it's all about relationships and uh, uh, being close to the players and having them to trust you and and get the most out of them. And uh, it, it just the managing and coaching part there in the uh, uh, Carolina League and all through the, my time coaching in the big leagues and managing the big leagues, that's what I tried to do is be honest up front with guys and have good relationships with them and uh, gain their trust and uh, help them be the best players they can be. But it was a lot of fun uh, there coaching and uh, managing some young guys in the Carolina League. And one thing, that year I was I was the manager right by myself. The Orioles didn't have a – a pitching coach or uh, another coach at uh, Carolina League that year. We had a roving pitching guy come in once in a while, but I was right there by myself, so I was teaching the infield, outfield, base running, had it all, and batting, you know, the hitting, pitching. So uh, it was a lot of fun just being able to do everything like that. Kind of a, That is an old-school way of doing it, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the teaching aspect. And for someone that's been around the game so long, and you're at the major league level now. When you see these guys come through the minor league system and come to the major leagues, do you think they're getting the instruction that you guys used to give, let's say, 10 years ago? Do you think the, the level of instruction is the same or has the, the need to get these prospects up to the major leagues quicker, you know, taken some of that? You know, for me, a lot of basics like hitting behind the runner bunting a lot of the thing even backing up you know the the lines from an outfielder i don't see that anymore yeah. all it, things we didn't see from the yankees on the series right. just ended. right we are seeing from the astros right that's true so so do you think that th- there's there's less instruction going on at the minor league level than let's say 10 to 15 years ago I, I think the instructing, you know, we've got so many tools to use today with the video and all the stats and everything that goes into it. I think the instruction may be better than it ever has been, but the thing that we're missing is is the playing time. I mean, the guy's just getting to play and play the game. That's how you get better is playing the game. And if you make a mistake, learn from it. And I think you, what you also touched on is about we're rushing guys through the big leagues. And, there, you know, there's a lot of guys that seems like they're in the minor leagues for a year, year and a half, and they're in the big leagues, and they're having to learn at the major league level. I didn't see the Yankees play this year. We didn't play them, so I can't comment on, on how they played the game fundamentally. But we did play the Astros, and I can tell you, they're going to play the game fundamentally right, and they're going to get after it, and they're going to bust their rear end, and the Red Sox got their hands full with that club.
Absolutely. Now, you compiled a record of 291 and 269 for the Orioles in their minor league system. You're hired as a coach for the Orioles by then skipper Johnny Oates. After two seasons in Baltimore, you move with Oates to the Texas Rangers. You're the third base coach from the Rangers from 1995 until your name interim manager in 2001 after fire, the firing of Johnny Oates. I have to imagine that that's somewhat of a bittersweet moment as you get your chance to be a manager at the big league level, but you're also taking over for a good friend and the guy who actually gave you your first major league coaching job. You know, what's that feeling like that day when you're named the interim manager? Well, I was kind of I was caught by surprise somewhat because it, it was more that I think Johnny was kind of frustrated and, you know, it, it, it run its course there with it and he knew that our club was on the down swing with it. And uh, uh, I think it was just time for him to move on. And Johnny and I talked about that and he really wanted me to take it and, and manage it. But I, I think Johnny was just so used to us winning and expecting to win and now things had just turned around where, you know, we had signed A-Rod and there was a lot of money put on one deal and he knew where we were. It was going to be a couple of years before the Rangers were going to win and I think he just kind of wanted to step aside. But uh, Johnny Oates is a huge influence in my life, not only on the field but off the field and uh, missing dearly. Once again, we're speaking with Jerry Naren. You have the interim tag removed, and you manage the team during the 2002 campaign. You look at the managers you played for, Bob Lemon, Billy Martin, Daryl Johnson, Maury Wills, Renee Latchman, John McNamara, Gene Mock, and Dick Williams. Which of those do you think your managerial style was the most similar to, and which manager had the biggest influence on you? You know, something I, I tried to take a little bit of every one of them, and uh, it, that that list you just gave is a tremendous list. Uh, I was very fortunate to to have played for them. I was also fortunate to be you know playing at a time when guys like Sparky Anderson and Earl Weaver were managing, and uh, also Tony Larusa later. And one thing I'm fortunate is that people like Sparky always gave me a lot of time. I mean, and, you know, to talk baseball. Uh, Tony LaRusso, the very same way. Guys that I have a lot of respect for. But the one guy to that list, you know, you learn a lot. You have the aggressiveness from Billy Martin, just unbelievable. And, you know, just huge. Just not afraid of anything, that type thing with Billy. But Gene Mock, by far, you know, the smartest guy. Uh, he, was, he, he was analytics before analytics. And just the smartest guy I played for, always, you know, uh, wanting to talk the game, what's going to happen, how it, how the game should go, uh, that type of thing, what moves should be made. And, uh, you know, he never got to a World Series. I was with him in 86 when we got there with the Dave Henderson home run, got us out of there. In 82, they got the, you know, in the 64 Phillies. It's a shame Gene never got to the, to the World Series. But I tell you, a really, really smart guy. You know, and probably learn more from him. Mark and I have talked with a lot of different people over the changing role of the manager in baseball today. That they're really they're not the same, the king of the, the castle basically as they used to be. They take orders from management, the middle management. How do you think a Gene Mock, a Sparky Anderson, uh, uh, a Billy, Billy Martin, Martin. <laughs> would, would react to, to, to the, basically the new business order of what managers are today? Billy's makeup, he would have said, forget about it. He would have, he would have had no part of it. You know, Billy wasn't going to have anybody tell him how to run a ball game. I could tell you that. And, but uh, everybody else in that list, good baseball guys, they, 
One thing about all managers, they want every bit of information they can get to help them run a ball game and win a game. And all these guys, I think, would have taken it, would have run with it. And the only guy is Billy probably would have, you know, you tell Billy the sky is blue, he'd have probably told him, you know, it's pink or something. I don't know. But, but Billy would have done it his way. But the other guys, are, are real, and Billy would have taken the information too. But, but Billy would have probably been a little hard-headed than the other ones. But the one thing about my managing time is I've managed twice, and both times I came in as an interim guy. Both times the general managers got fired. We just had new ownership in Texas. And when I got the, the deal in uh, Cincinnati, we had a change of ownership. So I, I never had an opportunity to come in from the ground floor and manage a club other than coming in as an interim. And you know when you get an interim club, you know you're, you're not very good. So I, I've, I've always just kind of been disappointed. I never got an opportunity to get a club from the very beginning and go with it other than like the interim guy and, and also have a change of GMs in, in between it. Now, you're also part of Grady Little's staff serving as a bench coach for the uh, the Boston Red Sox during the 2003 run to the ALCS, one which ended with the epic seven, uh, Game 7 playoff series that ended with Aaron Boone turned on the first offering from Tim Wakefield, sent Yankee Stadium in, into a craze, uh, sending the Yankees on to the World Series. Uh, you know, we just finished another Yankee Red Sox playoff series. Can you tell our audience what it's like you know, forget about regular season, but to be part of a Yankee Red Sox playoff series, what's that like when you're in it? Well, it's it's as good a rivalry as there is in any sport. Probably the best, I would think, right now over the over the last few years, and even way before. You know, you go back to the '40s, and and uh, but you know, I come to the big leagues in '78. As a, you know, I got caught up in September. The Red Sox were way out in front. The Yankees came back that year, and even the Bucky Dent game. So it's it, my entire career it has been Yankee Red Sox, and I'm fortunate to have been on both sides of it. Uh, the Red Sox part in '03, you know, they were still worried about 1918, and there was a lot of pressure on the Red Sox to, to get away from that. And then in '04, they were able to win it. We had a great club in 03 in, in Boston. Uh, our bullpen was kind of, you know, we did not have a set bullpen. Anybody great, he could really depend on at the end of the ball game. At the end of that year, they went out and they got Keith Falk as a closer. He was one of the best closers in the game at that time. They added him to the guys we had, and he also got a number one starter in Kirk Schilling. So uh, it's no surprise that the guys that I was with in 03 that all came back and they were able to win in 04. I'm not surprised one bit when they did that. Yeah, you have ties to another team in the playoffs as you served as a bench coach for the Milwaukee Brewers from 2011 to 2015. Your Diamondbacks team uh, played them six times this season, went one and five against them. What makes this Brewer team so resilient, and how important was the acquisition of Mike Moustakis to their success? Well, they, they've done a fantastic job since I left there with the, with the acquisitions they made. And, and Doug Melvin put together a lot of that bullpen. Some guys, he made the trade for, for a hater, and he made the, the trade for Knievel, and he, he had a chance to bring uh, Jeffries back there. So the bullpen, a lot of this bullpen had a lot to do with the way Doug Melvin, the moves he made before he, he you know, he left the organization or, or they didn't bring him back in 2016. But so, but in between, they've made some great deals. They, you know, Low Kane they bring in, and, and uh, Yelich. I mean, two great players. Uh, you know, with the Mustakas thing. And 
So bringing him, and we haven't even seen Scope hardly any here in the postseason. He's a you know pretty solid major league hitter. But they've got a solid club. Their bullpen is, should be uh, has pitched better than they have you know the last couple of days with Jeffries. But uh, the big thing with them is their their starting pitching hasn't been as consistent as they'd like to. And their their strength is their bullpen. They're using it. Craig Council does a great job. Um, very happy for counts. You know, grew up there in Milwaukee. Very, very smart baseball guy. Great competitor, and uh, he's doing a great job with them. It's interesting because after that Brewers job, the following season, you spent the entire 2016 season out of baseball, basically spending time fixing up your old high school baseball field in Goldsboro, North Carolina. There weren't many, if any, big league opportunities, and you really didn't consider returning to the minors, but there was a book called Chase the Lion by Mark Batterson that changed your perspective. What about that book had such a profound impact on you? Just a great book, uh, and it was about it was some of the things that he talked about was uh, you're never too old to uh, go after your dreams in life, and a lot of that has to do with your dreams can help other people achieve their goals and dreams in life, and that just kind of struck a chord on, with me, and I, I knew that the uh, Diamondbacks had a AAA managing job available, and my whole idea was to try to help guys in AAA get to the big leagues and reach their dreams, and it just worked out where, you know, where Gardy and spring training of uh, 17 had prostate cancer and he sat out for a couple months and I stayed there and just, you know, did a job there with him in 17 and, and was back there this past year. So it's amazing how things work out. But at the time, I even thought about not even getting back in the game. I read this book about how you can help other people achieve their goals and dreams and it just I, I just loved it. Yeah, you know, I mentioned in the open about your nickname, Jay Savage. So how does, from every person we ever speak to about you, you're a sweetheart, you have a fondness for fancy hats, you, you spend hours with calligraphy pens filling out the lineup cards. How do you get a nickname of Jay Savage? Because <laughs> when we get between the lines, I want to beat your butt. <laughs> but, but, no, you know, it started... You know, Gardy comes back to the club, so now I'm in the video room watching games and, and helping in the video room and things during the, the uh, right when Gardy got back. And we're we're playing the Padres, and uh, Jared Weaver's pitching. He comes out, and I think he's throwing like 77, 78 miles an hour. I mean, you can tell he doesn't have a whole lot. And we just whacked him around the ballpark in the first inning. And Taiwan Walker, the ninth hitter of the inning, comes up, and I, I said, right here is going to be the last guy Jared Weaver ever faces in the major leagues. I said, Walker's going to get a hit, and they're going to take him out, and this, be, this is going to be it for his career. Well, Walk gets a base hit up the middle. They take him out, and Jared Weaver hasn't seen another game in the big leagues. But when I said that, they, those guys said, that's pretty savage to talk about Jared Weaver like that. But, you know, Weaver had a great career, but you, there comes a time for all of us when we can't get it done anymore. But that's where the Jay Savage really started. <laughs> Lastly, right now there are five openings in the American League for managers. You coach for one of them, the Orioles. You manage another in Texas. You played for another in the Angels. Would you have interest in being a manager again, and do any or do all of those openings intrigue you? Well, I, you know, something I'd, I'd love to manage again. Uh, if the opportunity arises where everything works out, uh, that I love the idea of the analytics today. I, I, I love the idea of getting all the help you can, you know, any way you can. 
Uh, and like I said, it'd been nice to have had a start from the, the ground floor with somebody that just did not happen. And if it doesn't happen now, that's okay. I'm happy being the bench coach there in Arizona and just see where things lead. And uh, I'm not out there politicking for a job. I don't have an agent calling around. So I'm not worried about it. If somebody wants to talk, I'd love to talk with them. But if not, that's okay, too. I'm happy doing what I'm doing and just try to get the Diamondbacks back to the postseason next year. You know, I, I did say lastly, but you brought up the analytics. So I, I just want to touch on that a little more. So you're, you're an old Scott, an old school guy. You're a lifer. You, you played under guys like Billy Martin. But you said you, you do like the analytics. So let me ask you a question. I, I'm 58. I, I think at, at some point the analytics, the launch angle, some of that stuff. Like I look at the Astros, and I think they, they play small ball. They run the bases well. They're athletic. You know, I see other teams where it's, you know, Earl Weaver, which isn't to, to say it's bad. It's a three-run homer or right. nothing. But, you know, I think baseball's gotten to a point where there's so much emphasis on the defensive shift, so many shifts per game, you know, the overuse of the bullpen. Do you think we, that there can be a manager that can find a middle ground where it's, it's a little bit by gut, you know, sometimes not going by that book, not having that loose leaf binder that says if A is pitching with A with B at first base and C at second base, we need to throw. We and, need and to bring a pitcher is D. D and right. then, you know, the Do you timing's... think we're gonna come back to the middle a little bit at all, or is it you know old school baseball is gone for good? Everything runs in cycles. There's no question it'll come back. But I, I like the idea of having as much information as, at your disposal as you possibly can use. I have absolutely no problem with that. A lot of the analytics thing today, though, is just a, uh, a verbiage change of everything. You think about launch angle. Launch angle started with Babe Ruth back in 1919 or 1920 or whatever. I mean, he was the first guy that really tried to get the ball up in the air and try to hit the ball at the ballpark. You go back to launch angle. Ted Williams was talking about slight uppercut in the, in the 40s and 50s, and if you read the book, you know, Science of Hitting, he'll tell you you've got to have an uppercut swing. So, you know, launch angle is nothing new. The bullpenning thing, uh, you want outs. You want your best pitcher out there on the mound. The bullpenning where you're just going to run bullpen guys out there, you know, somewhat like the opener like the Rays did, it's going to be very, very difficult for that to ever happen over 162 games. You go back to the World Series in 2011, though, Tony La Russa did a lot of bullpenning in 2011. He had his starters, but I tell you what, they get a little bit of hiccup. They got him out of there. Right. And, you know, the bullpen, having a strong bullpen, I heard a couple years ago people were talking about, oh, well, you got to have a strong bullpen. Well, you go back to 1976 and 1977, there wasn't a better guy out of a bullpen than Sparky Lyle. Won the Cy Young in 77. What's George doing in 78? He goes out and gets Goose Scott. Right. This stuff about having to have a good bullpen, strong bullpen, uh, that, that's nothing new. It's all about having your best pitchers out there and getting out. But the analytics part, I, I, I love that, you know, any kind of factor figure you can get. The analytic part, you know, anybody can read the numbers and tell you what, but it takes old school, maybe not old school, but baseball guys with pretty good eyes to tell you the why. So as for the analytics in the middle ground, you still got to have somebody to tell you the why, because anybody can read the numbers and tell you what. So, honestly, lastly, th this is the, the question then. The third lastly. So, the third lastly. So, let's say you have the analytics, all right, a and you and Tari are discussing something based on analytics, but the two of you have a gut feeling 
that says, you know what, even though we should be bringing in so-and-so today, uh, because he's got good numbers against him, do you guys ever go against that book just on gut saying, you know what, I, I don't feel it today, go with you know, a different pitcher? Uh, yeah, I, you, you've got to use your eyes. I mean, you can have the greatest, the perfect numbers off somebody, and if a, if a pitcher's not, you know, he doesn't show you he's got his good stuff, I mean, you're going to get him out of there no matter what the numbers tell you. But the, the numbers, you know, you, you got all the, you can get any kind of number on anything you want. I, I love it. I have absolutely no problem with the analytics part, but I'm thankful that I've got the experience to go along with it, and that makes it enjoyable because I love hearing some of these young guys you read off the analytics, and they'll they'll tell you we need to you know we need to have guys hit the ball behind runners and put the ball in play, and there's too many strikeouts and that and, and it's like duh, that was a uh, hundred years ago, you know. <laughs> so a lot of this stuff is just reverberating or re. re- you know, recycling or resetting it in a different way. But the game's been played pretty much the same for the last 160 years or whatever. It's just, uh, you know, with the information, you still want to get it and use it as best you can. Excellent. Jerry, thanks so much for your time tonight. We really appreciate it. <laughs> no, I've enjoyed it. And anytime I can talk baseball, I love it. I'm very blessed to have been in the game for as long as I can and uh, have no regrets. And uh, just flat out love it. And I'm going to sit down here and watch the Astros and Red Sox get after it. Enjoy it. I'll see you out at City Field during sure. the season. It sounds great. You got it. Jay Savage, Jerry Naren, Arizona Diamondbacks bench coach.